Folks, now let's have a heart-to-heart talk. I know you're busy. I know you hate to hear people talk on the air. But this is for your good. Welcome to Rapidly Rotating Records, an hour of toe-tapping music from rapidly rotating 78 RPM records of the 1920s and 30s, with yours truly, Glenn Robison. We've got dance bands, hot bands, sweet bands, show tunes, novelty tunes, blues, jazz, and more, on everything from Aeolian to Xenophone, and by everyone from Aronson to Zerky. On this evening's show, we're going to do some squawking, celebrate Missouri's statehood, we'll take it easy, go backstage, and commit some crimes. What? So to speak. For no particular reason other than as I was searching through records, I came across the one which starts off this segment, we're going to listen to some squawking. And of course I can't hear the word squawk without thinking of the cafe scene in W.C. Field's 1941 film Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. I don't know why I ever come in here. Flies get the best of everything. Go away, go away, go away, go away. And another thing, you're always squawking about something. If it isn't the steak, it's something else. I didn't squawk about the steak, dear. I merely said I didn't see that old horse that used to be tethered outside here. You're as funny as a cry for help. That's the wonderful character actress Jodie Gilbert as the waitress, unfortunately uncredited in many of her roles, where, again, unfortunately, she was usually cast as the stereotypical large woman. But I digress. Here are the Louisiana Five. Thank you. 
American blues singer Edna Hicks, accompanied on piano by Lemuel Fowler with his composition, Squawkin' the Blues, from Vocalion 14659, recorded on August 24, 1923. Before Edna Hicks, it was the New Orleans Blue Five with Thomas Morris on cornet, Joe Tricky Sam Nanton on trombone, and Bob Fuller on clarinet and soprano sax with My Baby Doesn't Squawk, recorded by Victor on November 2, 1926. We started off that set with Clarinet Squawk by the Louisiana Five on September 12, 1919. The Louisiana Five was led by drummer Anton Lada and included clarinetist Alcide Nunez, a former member of the ODJB. I'm Glenn Robison, and you're listening to Rapidly Rotating Records, bringing you vintage music to which you can't not tap your toes from rapidly rotating 78 RPM records of the 1920s and 30s. If we were playing Jeopardy and the answer was it became the 24th State of the Union on August 10th, 1821, the correct question would be, what is Missouri? Missouri was named after a tribe of Sioux Indians and the word Missouri means wooden canoe people or he of the big canoe. Missouri became known as the Show Me State after Missouri Congressman Willard Duncan Vandiver delivered a speech in Philadelphia in 1899 and said, for thy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You've got to show me. It's also known as the Gateway to the West, and with more than 6,000 caves, the Cave State. Fair food at state and county fairs these days is usually something fried, but fair food at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis included new treats such as waffle cones, cotton candy, iced tea, and Dr. Pepper. The state flower is the hawthorn and the state animal the mule, but enough fun facts about it, here are some fun records about Missouri, beginning with Burt Lown and his Hotel Biltmore Orchestra.
very warm Let me show you why I'm so blue I just long to be with folks I long to see Who still belong to me and you Old Missouri farms Take me in your arms Hold me so I never can run Open up your doorway Or I'm coming your way My Missouri Thank you.
Benny Moten's Kansas City Orchestra with a Moten original, Missouri Wobble. That was recorded in Chicago's Webster Hotel on December 14, 1926, and issued as Victor 20422. Before that, the Six Brown Brothers saxophone sextet with Missouri Blues from Emerson 1056, recorded in the spring of 1919. Missouri Blues was written by Harry Brown, who played in the band, but who wasn't one of the actual Brown brothers. He was, in fact, Harry Fink, born Harry Finkelstein. Even after he left the Brown brothers in 1921, he used the name Harry Brown in Vincent Lopez's Hotel Pennsylvania music. We started off this Missouri set with Burt Lown and his Hotel Biltmore Orchestra with My Missouri Home, written by Little Jack Little. The vocalist was Elmer Feldkamp, and it took the group three trips to the Victor Studios in New York to get it right. Two takes each in sessions on January 8th and 19th, 1931, were rejected. Finally, take five from a January 27th session was issued as catalog number 22624. I'm Glenn Robison, and the show is Rapidly Rotating Records. If you enjoy the music and would like to get in touch to make a request for a particular song or artist make a suggestion for a segment topic, ask a question or comment on a record, or just to say hi, there are any number of ways to do so. You can send an email to glenn at rapidlyrotatingrecords.com. That's glenn with two N's. You can also call 234-PLAY-78s, like listener Daryl from Fullerton did, to congratulate us on our 19th anniversary show. That's 234-PLAY-78s or 234-752-9787. Or you can send a card or letter to Post Office Box 145, Claremont, California, 91711. And believe it or not, there are people who do still send cards and letters. That's Post Office Box 145, Claremont, California, 91711. Now, isn't that a wonderful offer? You're not too lazy to send us a card or letter, are you? An offer like this, if you fail to send, there's something wrong somewhere. Well, it is a wonderful offer, and I hope to hear from you. Last week I played If You Can't Make It Easy, Sweet Mama, which reminded me of the phrase, Take It Easy. It has several meanings, including the fairly recent Stay Calm or Keep Your Cool, But the original meaning of take it easy is to relax for recreational purposes and dates all the way back to 1867. Well, for this segment, we're going to take it easy, chronologically, beginning with Art Hickman.
a whole bunch of take-it-easies. We started off with the San Francisco sound of Art Hickman's orchestra with a take-it-easy written by someone named White. That's from Columbia A2938, recorded in New York on September 16, 1919. And you gotta love any record with wood blocks and slide whistles in it. Duke Ellington recorded his composition, Take It Easy, quite a few times, but we heard the Brunswick 78 with the Washingtonians from March 21, 1928. The Duke was followed by Earl Hines and his orchestra with James Mundy's take on Take It Easy, also on Brunswick, number 6771, recorded October 27, 1933. 
And just barely spanning four decades, we finished up with Valley de Snow, July 26, 1940. That Take It Easy was written by Dorothy Fields and Jimmy McHugh for the 1935 George Raft, Alice Faye, Francis Langford picture, Every Night at Eight. This is Rapidly Rotating Records, and we're on every Sunday at 6. On Island Radio, FM 88.7, KISL Avalon, and KISLAvalon.com. And every one of our shows is available every second of every day online at RapidlyRotatingRecords.com. Last week, August 5th, marked the debut in 1935 on the Mutual Broadcasting Network of the radio drama Mary Noble, Backstage Wife. Here's the opening to episode 4,125. And now, Backstage Wife, the story of Mary Noble and what it means to be the wife of a famous star. Larry Noble is under contract to make a picture in Hollywood for the newly organized Marco and Franklin studio. Nothing could have persuaded him to leave Mary in New York at a time like this, where she's recuperating in a hospital from the acid burns inflicted by the enraged Claudia Vincent, if he hadn't read a telegram to Mary from their friend Tom Bryson, the playwright, indicating that it was Mary's wish to have her husband leave New York. Acid burns? The enraged Claudia Vincent? Yeah, that's a typical episode of Backstage Wife, involving jealousy, deceit, and rage from hussies, Jezebels, and schemers. Oh, and don't forget amnesia. Throughout its 24-year run, which ended on January 2, 1959, Mary Noble was played by only two actresses, Vivian Friedel, and for the last 14 years, by Claire Nielsen. The show was famously parodied by Bob and Ray as Mary Backstage, Noble Wife. For this segment of the show, we're going to go musically backstage, beginning with Dick McDonough and Carl Kress.
your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. The profession is overcrowded and the struggle is pretty tough. And admitting the fact she's burning to act, that isn't quite enough. She has nice hands to give the wretched girl her due, but don't you think her bust is too developed for her age? I repeat, Mrs. Worthington, sweet Mrs. Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage. Regarding yours, dear Mrs. Worthington, of Wednesday the 23rd, although your baby may be keen on a stage career, how can I make it clear this is not a good idea for her to hope Dear Mrs. Worthington, is on the face of it absurd. Her personality is not in reality exciting enough, inviting enough for this particular sphere. Don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. She's a bit of an ugly duckling, you must honestly confess. And the width of her seat would surely defeat her chances of success. It's a loud voice. And though it's not exactly flat, she'll need a little more than that to earn a living wage on my knees, Mrs. Worthington. Please, Mrs. Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage. Don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. Though they said at the School of Acting she was lovely as Pierre Gint, I'm afraid on the whole an ingenue role would emphasize her squint. She's a big girl. And though her teeth are fairly good, she's not the type I ever would be eager to engage. No more butts, Mrs. Worthington. Nuts, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. Cherishing a secret in my bosom about this dreadful stage life that I lead. I've heard it said that pros are decent people, but according to the papers that I read, both actresses and actors are dead wrongers, whether from the palace or the hippodrome. The chaps I meet outside know I'm an actor, but I never breathe a word of it at home. So my mother doesn't know I'm on the stage. It would break a poor old heart if she found out. She knows I'm a deserter from the Scottish Fusiliers. She knows I stole a blind man's can. That got me seven years. She knows I've been connected with a gang of West End pests. And the police have had me twice inside the cage. And she knows I mix with ladies that have got a shady past. But my mother doesn't know I'm on the stage. Sometimes she sees the powder on me clothing. And then it's such a nuisance to explain. If she thought it was powder, she'd go crazy. Of course, I have to tell her it's cocaine. The day she met me out with Gladys Cooper, she started screaming murder and police and would have caused a dreadful scene in public. So I told her that the girl was Crippen's niece because my mother doesn't know I'm on the stage. And when I draw 600 pounds each week, 
If she knew where it came from, she'd shoot me like a dog. So I said I stole the money box from an Irish synagogue. She can think that I'm a murderer before she'll know the truth. I have to have respect for her old age. And she knows that I'm a bigamist, a blackguard and a crook. But thank heaven she don't know I'm on the stage. William Robertson Russell Bennett, better known as British comedian Billy Bennett, who was billed as almost a gentleman, with his dramatic monologue, My Mother Doesn't Know I'm on the Stage. That's from English Columbia 5719, recorded October 24, 1927. I would have sworn that I've played Mrs. Worthington on the show before, but apparently not. That was, of course, Noel Coward from Victor 25230, recorded in London on August 15, 1935. Clifford Greenswood conducted the orchestra, and next to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Mrs. Worthington was Winston Churchill's favorite Noel Coward song. We started with the guitar duo of Dick McDonough and Carl Kress with McDonough's tune, Stage Fright. Brunswick 6917 was recorded January 30, 1934. Last week, August 4th, marked the debut in 1940 on the CBS radio network of the drama show Crime Doctor. Another amnesia-themed show, it was about a criminal named Phil Morgan who sustained a severe blow to the head and lost his memory. So what does he do? Of course, he creates a new identity as Dr. Robert Ordway and works as a crime fighter, explaining mistakes criminals had made, resulting in their getting caught. Max Marson created the character of Dr. Robert Ordway, which was played during the show's seven-year run by Ray Collins, House Jameson, Everett Sloan, and John McIntyre. Here's what the opening of the show sounded like in 1945. And now another of Max Marson's crime doctor dramas, brought to you by the makers of Philip Morris Cigarettes. So, to commemorate the Crime Doctor show, here's a set of rapidly rotating records about crime. Kind friends, you have all heard the story of Powers and his murder farm. It's located up there near Clarksburg, between the hills where there's beauty and charm. The farm is just off of the highway Near the village of Quiet Dell Where he lured his innocent victims And placed them in dark dungeon cells He corresponded with Miss Eichner Out in Park Ridge, Illinois A large home he promised the widow The children he promised some toys away out to meet them then drove them to quiet dell he then put his car in the shelter the eisners he placed in the cell the cells they were all made soundproof from road you couldn't hear a cry they suffered for food and for water 
and waited their time for to die. The first was the widow Weishner, by rope he hung her to the joist. The boy watched his poor mother murder, then cried with a loud mournful voice. Don't kill my poor darling mother, you know that she loves only you. In your letters you said you loved her, and you said you'd always be true. Then Powers grabbed a carpenter's hammer that was lying upon the floor. He hit the poor boy with the hammer, and his cries will be heard nevermore. The mother was hanged to a rafter, the boy lay dead where he fell. Then Powers went down the stairway and opened the door of the cell. A faint cry was heard from the dungeon, the sound was like one out of breath. Twas only the cruel Harry Powers strangling the children to death. From the house there's a ditch to the river, side by side he laid them to rest. He rolled the cold clods in upon them, they're gone to their home with the blast. In jail he is waiting his sentence, for wrecking the Isher home. On that great judgment morning in heaven, he will answer to God on his throne. So kind friends, let this be a warning, don't exchange the old friends for the new, for there may be another powers who will deal out the same fate to you. Kidnapping's a terrible crime. Kidnapping's a terrible crime They sneak up behind you They gag you and bind you Kidnapping's a terrible crime They take you and hide you away In some old place out of the way Then they demand ransom a price that is handsome Kidnapping's a terrible crime They torture you out of your mind They threaten to make you go blind It's cruel but it's funny What some do for money Kidnapping's a terrible crime Pillows to rest neath their heads And sometimes they found them With dirt all around them Kidnapping's a terrible crime They took a rich man named McRae Ten thousand they said he must pay 
He tried to escape, now his wife's wearing crape. Kidnapping's a terrible crime. Good people, if I had my way, I'd sure make them kidnappers pay. I'd boil them in oil, dig them graves deep in soil. Kidnapping's a terrible crime. A prison is too good for them. It's not bad enough for such men. Their hearts made of ice on their heads put a price. Kidnapping's a terrible crime. I get a kick out of both of those records because the music is so antithetical to the subject matter of the songs. Not to make light of it, because the first record is about actual gruesome murders committed by the serial killer Harry F. Powers. That was Bob Ferguson and his Scalawaggers with The Crime of Harry Powers from Columbia 15727, recorded December 1, 1931. Bob Ferguson was a pseudonym on Columbia for Bob Miller and his Hinky Dinkers who recorded a number of other crime-related songs, including Prisoner's Letter to the Governor, The Pardon of Tom Mooney, and their hangin' old Jonesy Tomorrow. Bob Miller recorded for Victor under his own name. And if you're interested, there's a detailed Wikipedia article about Harry F. Powers. The Crime of Harry Powers was followed by Kidnapping is a Terrible Crime. I love the line in there, He tried to escape, his wife's wearing crepe. Kidnapping's a terrible crime. Again, not to make light, because kidnapping is a terrible crime, but if that song is based on a real case, I couldn't find anything about it. The label credits Joe Smith, a pseudonym on Bluebird 5522, for Dwight Butcher. Dwight Butcher did triple duty on that May 28, 1934 recording, singing, yodeling, and playing guitar. He was accompanied by Pete Canova on violin. Kidnapping is a Terrible Crime was written by Joe Hoover, who apparently had a thing about crime, since he also wrote the songs Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker and John Dillinger, which were also recorded by Joe Smith, billed as the Lonesome Cowboy. I'll have to see if I can find those. Country music singer, guitarist, and songwriter Dwight Butcher was born August 6, 1911 in Oakdale, Tennessee, and was also known as Slim Oakdale. He wrote Old Love Letters, Bring Memories of You, and When Jimmy Rogers Said Goodbye, and died November 11th, 1978. We're gone now, but we'll be back. You listen for your local announcer in a minute to tell you all about when we'll be back. I'm Glenn Robison. The show is Rapidly Rotating Records, and we'll be back next Sunday at 6 here on KISL Avalon. I hope you'll click in or tune in again next week, and as always, I thank you for your very kind attention. Mm-hmm.